what am I going to do when I can't open my eyes and see you again? You are so beautiful. I'm imagining scrolls, tankas of the future, that you know how they have so many, many angelic beings and enlightened beings and picture you just pictured there. Ah, oh, maybe a few clouds here. Uh, rays of sun and moon. Yeah. Oh, and that'll be in beautiful shrines when they look back at guiding teachers of the great turning. <laughs> you have to you have to use your moral imagination, don't you, to feed your energy and your mind and your bod. So uh, just a second, I have something. So I drew this at the beginning of our week, you'll recall. And it's the spiral as we call it, of the work that reconnects. And we've, you can kind of remember how we went through, how it was we did this on Tuesday day. And then, oh, Wednesday, wow. And Thursday and Friday here. And we come around. So we felt our blessings. We felt a keener sense of the beauty of wonder being alive right now on Earth. They're not just alive now, but going back to that uh, Tibetan practice, we think it was not only rare and precious that we're alive, but that we live uh, in a time when we could hear the Dharma. So that's another little part that you think about. Oh, congratulations, you did that. You got born when you could hear the Dharma in an era that where the Dharma was taught. And then the next thing you bring to mind, you were interested. <laughs> I mean, you could have been exposed, it just went right by you. <laughs> But no, you, what's that? You noticed it. Oh, you are so fortunate. Yeah, and then, ah, they think of this too, that you think that you have had the material support and the time to be able to come and hear and read and practice the teachings. Oh, you know, we have a lot of sisters and brothers out there holding down two, three jobs, sick and hungry, trying to take care of their kids and their old folks, and they don't have a minute. So it's a very great blessing. Yeah. So there's never enough. Gratitude is endless. And then how powerful, how well we were able to go in and harvest the 
liberation, kind of liberation brought in there. Uh, being able to see that the uh, pain, the anger, the grief, and the wounds as well are gifts too. I'm saying the lines of a poem that I'm going to tell you the whole sonnet later, but there's these lines. Let this darkness, the darkness of our era, of our planet time, let this darkness be a bell tower, and you the bell. And as you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. I love that. And then it's nice to think that that's the symbol for the mother too in the Dorchi and Bell. The wisdom of the mother is seen as a bell. And then seeing with new eyes. I forget all we did then. I know we harvested, we hung out with the ancestors and the future beings. Oh, when we talked with the animals, other life forms. Hey, did you like that? Yes. Oh, just, I think that should be fed into our daily routine. And now we come to going forth. So as part of the going forth, uh, which includes tonight. Uh, I will want to. Um, I want to just mention some of the source materials that I've been using. So this is a great. This is the uh, translation from Buddhist Sanskrit of the Astasasrika Pajnaparamita, Perfection of Wisdom in Eight Thousand lines translated by Edward Kanza. And um, pretty good. <laughs> and what? C-O-N-Z-E. And he has another, he has two other uh, books. Uh, he's, he's a scholar of the first part of the 20th century that's very good on uh, early Mahayana. Like him. And um, then I drew a lot on this book of mine called World is Lover, World is Self. And this is a book of essays. Any of you familiar with it? Yeah. It's, I just love it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the chapter on Mother of All Buddhas is good. And, and I drew from that a lot. And um, other sources, um, I just watch out a little bit for, uh, except for Kanza, uh, just a little hesitant about some of the male teachers uh, who uh, mean well. <laughs> And um, uh, there's a great chapter I discovered this morning, again, 
in my memoir, Widening Circles. Are you familiar with that book? Yeah. And that has a chapter entitled Mother of All Buddhas. I was so moved reading it. I kind of teared up a little bit because it was never described how I was ready to go back to graduate school. There I was already, 40, 41 kids in high school, and, I, and, and my husband had a heart attack. Remember that part? <laughs> and it was massive heart attack, and I was driving to him. I'd been up uh, with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche at Tail of the Tiger in North, northern Vermont, and I got the word, and I went. And on the way, I thought, oh my god, please, please let him live, let him live. I know what I just do, and I couldn't wait to tell him my decision. And I went in, and there he was in intensive care, and he had oxygen tubes in his nose, and suction cups went monitoring his chest and heart, and IVs going in his brain, you know, and, and then he looked up and recognized me, and I couldn't wait to tell him. I said, honey, it's okay, I won't, I'm not going to school. I'm going to stay here and take care of you. <laughs> that was the worst thing I could have said. He said, no! <laughs> he struggled up. <laughs> you must go to school. <laughs> and the nurses, they were furious at me. I probably caused them another heart attack. He said, okay, 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 all right, I'll go to school. Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> uh, now, there have been uh, queries about other uh, feminine figures in uh, Buddhism, and uh, I just could mention a few uh, of those who have written that I've found particularly helpful. Sandy Boucher uh, has written about Kuan Yin, and um, I think two books and a third is uh, with a lot of uh, art called She Appears. That's beautiful. She's so great. And Sultram Alioni and Miranda Shaw have written about women in Tibetan Buddhism and others. And of course, there are wonderful books about the Terry, uh, the early sisters in the, the time of the Buddha. Um, Okay, enough for that. I want to tell you uh, about uh, books and networks and gatherings just for the work that reconnects. So it's been such a pleasure for me to do. The work that reconnects is what I mainly do when I go out uh, with people in this country, in this continent, in the Western Hemisphere, around the world, and there are more and more people doing it, and it's been translated. And, and uh, it's inspired, so now you can see, if you're canny, uh, how it's inspired by the mother of all Buddhas. But I rarely get a chance to actually do it like hand in glove with her. And, um, but it's... Uh, 
one is here for you to use. So I'm glad I brought this down to show you, but then I see that they're pile of books. So if this is the last uh, book just published last fall uh, that gives both the theory and the uh, of um, drawing from uh, systems theory, deep ecology, and spiritual traditions, particularly Buddhist, but others as well, indigenous strongly. Uh, and then the full spiral of the work and about 50 different or more different practices. And the practices that we did here are mostly found there, the interactive ones. And in this book, I see that on the table in there is the book that came out 16 years ago, the black and red one. And, um, but this one has two chapters added. Uh, one is on working, doing the work that reconnects with children and teens, and then with communities of color. And uh, so there's that. I'm so grateful for that. So grateful for my wonderful co-author, uh, Molly Brown, lives up on Mount Shasta. And there is a website, several websites that are mentioned here. There's a website uh, of mine, joannamacy.net. There's a website that, and that was my calendar and a lot of the background thinking for the work and a lot of the poems and um, also, I, I uh, piece on the, the importance to me of the nuclear challenge and the response that's come out of dealing with that, and, and which is the cause for my interest in deep time, the nuclear guardianship project. So that's in, on, in, on my website. Then there's the website for the work that reconnects where you'll find uh, other um, facilitators and where you can post yourself as you find that you are doing the work and going to events and meeting other people in the network and uh, polishing up your own skills. Now I want to have a drum roll, please. Ta-dam! These are the five vows. Oh, I almost forgot something. So uh, Active Hope, I'm glad a lot of you, a bunch of you buy Active Hope. It's very good for working in groups, too. Um, did I you see, did anybody get Active Hope? Yeah. <laughs> That's the reddish one, yeah. So there is a website for that too, activehope.something. <laughs> we'll find it. You'll find it. All right, so then over the last uh, couple of decades, so this work has been uh, doing and growing uh, 
almost four decades, almost, I think it goes back about 37, 38 years. And then uh, the last uh, 15 years or more, uh, we have found it uh, really helpful uh, to uh, have vows. It's just gone beyond. It's gone beyond the people in the work that reconnects. But seeing how life is becoming pretty challenging uh, now with the political, social, environmental, I don't like using that word, ecological developments, uh, that to ground ourselves. And uh, it never occurred to me to uh, think about vows until uh, the last day of a 10-day intensive down at uh, Pema Osaling, a Tibetan center in, near Sokel. And the people there were meeting in their home groups to say for their last, they'll check in and goodbye. And I was wandering around taking a walk. I'd actually gone to the monastery kitchen to make myself a brown sugar sandwich. I did that to console myself. I'd be losing uh, their company of the people that came. And lounging in the door of the um, kitchen was uh, one of the monks, a lovely British guy named Trevor. And he said, and they were so supportive of this 10 days of, in the work that we connect, because they saw it. They saw it as bodhisattva training. And he said, well, I suppose as they're leaving now, it's the last day you'll be giving them vows. <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> and he said, pity. <laughs> it's a pity because I find that vows are so very helpful. They help concentrate and channel the energy. I said, oh, well, I don't do that. And then I went walk out and I said, well, if we were, if we needed vows, what would we? Well, we shouldn't have more than fingers on one hand and so forth. And so these grew up. And I'm going to I'm going to uh, read them to you one at a time. Then we're going to proceed with our afternoon. But this is going to give you a chance to uh, ingest them a little bit and see if you want to take them, because we're going to have a little ceremony where we can take and retake them again tonight when we're together. Those who've already had them can retake them. So this is how I vow to myself and to each of you here. First vow. To commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings. That might seem obvious, but you know it isn't. I find when I say the vows to myself, uh, and that I thought, oh, yeah, that's a thought. <laughs> yeah. But, all right. 
What? That's all right. But um, you, know, you don't have to write them down. I'm going to leave them here, and you can come up and take a look. I didn't, I didn't want to use, I'd have to, have to use too much paper or write too big. So I'm just going to, I'll just leave it like that since you can't read it anyway. <laughs> so I, I vow to myself and to each of you here to live an earth more simply and less violently in the food products, and energy I consume. That's number two. Number three, which is my favorite, I vow to myself and to each of you to draw guidance and strength from the living earth, from the ancestors, from the future generations, and from our brothers and sisters of all species. See, that's what's great about being in a web of life, is you can do that because the energy and the nutrients and the information circulate. That's why a net is a net, for, made by the circulation of matter, energy, and information. So we draw on each other's gifts. That's why the mother has, the mother of all Buddhas has us make that great ball of merit and view it with such you could because what's in the net been put in there is what we can also give to it and receive from it. So fourth, I vow to myself and to each of you here to ask for, no, what is it? To help you in your work for the world. And that um ask for help when I need it. That is something many of us need to learn. Some, it's easier for us to help than ask for help. And then lastly, I vow to myself and to each of you here to pursue a daily spiritual practice that clarifies the mind and strengthens the heart and supports me in observing these vows. And of course, you can add anything you want to it, before, after, sideways. But this, uh, these five have been such a help to so many people. And, and that they made their way into a book for the first time in Active Hope, where my co-author, Chris Johnstone, uh, who lives in Scotland. He wanted to put them there. He says, so helpful. So we're going to do that tonight. Is that good news? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is for me too. So now I would like to, as we move into some reflections on the Dharma and on the history, I'd like to take a look back. I'd like to look back with you uh, to the time of the Lord Buddha. So he was teaching 
and wandering and moving around in the Gangetic plain, that plain of Gange, the, the Ganges, and much of what is today Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. And uh, at the time, uh, two uh, monarchies, great mo powerful monarchies, uh, were growing up. One was the kingdom of Koshala, and the other was the kingdom of Magadha. And uh, there were a lot of historical factors involved. It has, was linked to uh, increased rice production and growing surplus, it was in, and which uh, increased trade. And it was linked to then to uh, urbanization, growth of big cities and people being pulled from their traditional ways of life to the cities and experiencing an anonymity, uh, ripping of part of their ancestral customary ties and definitions of who they were and their role in the world. And it was a, involved a centralization of power. These became very powerful uh, kings. That, and there were other wandering teachers at the time, because <coughs> there were a lot of uh, those who took to the forest as an alternative to the cities, kind of dropouts, and there were teachers there. And this was very much a feature of Indian life. The Buddha, however, while he was sort of could be seen in that category of a forest teacher. He spent a surprising amount of his time in and around the cities. And quite a few of the kings and ministers uh, knew him, and merchants as well. And some of the names that are very familiar to us of showing up in his conversations in the early discourses are names of kings or names of like Bimbisara or names of uh, wealthy merchants like uh, Jetavana. And uh, no, that wasn't his name. That was the name of his place, but it'll come to me. It doesn't matter. But the Buddha didn't come from there. He didn't grow up in a monarchy. He grew up in a tribal republic, one of five or six of them, that st stretched across the southern part of Nepal. And these... <coughs> These were beginning to disappear at the time of the rise of the monarchies. These tribal republics were on their wane. And that was caused by that. They were either engulfed by one of the kings or um, conquered outright or um, 
Now, so one of them, so there was these like the Lichavis and the Vajas, the names, and one was the Sakyas, which was where a Gautama Siddhartha came from. And these republics, this is, I got so interested in this, and I'm hoping it strikes an interest in one or two of you to look more with uh, younger, more vigorous intellects at this, because there's some interesting scholarship being done about this. That these, so he grew up in a society where that was self-governing by a council. And this tribal council made their decisions in uh, open discourse. Sort of like it makes me think of what I've been learning about the Haudenosaunee and um, Native American um, Iroquois Federation and so forth, making their decisions. And this is referred to sometimes by the Buddha when he talks about uh, you can trust a culture or the Dharma will last as long as or people meet and make their decisions in concert. So these councils, the name for the council, for all of them was Sangha. Yeah, a little noise. <laughs> Heard that word before. <laughs> So when the Buddha's followers and disciples, those who wanted to reorient their lives according to the realities of life that he opened to them, according to what they were learning about, uh, the causes of suffering and the causes of the cessation of suffering and the eightfold path around livelihood and generosity and all, speech and all of that that he was laid out, uh, they found themselves gathering in these in uh, settlements, communities, and that called themselves sanghas. Sometimes just for the rainy season, and then they would go uh, out wandering and teaching again, and sometimes staying put and building up and becoming centers of learning. And, and so I got really interested in, in these early sanghas, that they are struck by... Uh, three or four features of them. Uh, one is that um, they were completely non-hierarchical and the whole movement of those who followed the teachings of the Lord Buddha uh, did not have a headquarters. There was no 
Rome or Jerusalem or Vatican or, uh, and that these settlements, these communities, were centers of ortho, not of orthodoxy, which would mean right beliefs, but orthopraxis. They were communities of practice. And if in their uh, debates about how they wanted to live together, or even about their view of reality, there was a difference. The early Vinaya, the book of the rules of the uh, early monastics, had a uh, uh, practice, they rule called Sangha Veda, the Sangha, it's like mitosis, that they could just split. Not that one was right, nobody was excommunicated, thrown out, called a heretic, anything. Oh, well, if you want to think that way, you go over there. That's fine. See you around. And they uh, were, um, you get the picture? Kind of attractive, I thought. So that this, and, and uh, but there was, with all of them, uh, certain practices that were absolutely in common. And uh, one was uh, radical inclusion, social inclusion. Anybody could join, of whatever background. Because uh, already there was a caste system in, uh, growing up in India. And it already reflected, was reflected in skin tone. And so from whatever background you came from, whatever color skin you had, if you were a runaway slave, if you were an AWOL soldier, whatever, you were welcome. And the Buddha insisted on this, and apparently because they all insisted on it, even though that made the Lord Buddha kind of a laughing stock. It made him appear, he was scorned for this. And you can find passages where uh, people are quoted, oh, that Sakyamuni, boy, that one, he lets in anybody. What, who'd want to, makes me think of Groucho Marx, you know. I wouldn't want to go, go to a country club that would allow me. You know. <laughs> Who would want to go to a sangha that let in just anybody? So the, uh, he this was uh, uh, true uh, throughout, as far as I can uh, know from my limited scholarship. That's one, social inclusion. Economic sharing, uh, a gift economy, no private property. So that, uh, now this was certainly true, sort of these settlements were uh, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, 
upasikas and upasakis, so lay men and lay women, and uh, how much the uh, lay men and women also were, uh, they depended on, uh, as the slant now looking back uh, at recent uh, customary scholarship, let's seems to let the lay people have um, private property with which they support the monks and nuns. But the idea of it being uh, uh, freedom from the burden of wealth and ownership, uh, the um, self-sufficiency and, and self-restraint in consumption. And interestingly enough, E.F. Schumacher in his book, Small is Beautiful, derives a lot of his inspiration there, what he called Buddhist economics, from these early sanghas. And then um, thirdly, so there was... Um, uh, sharing, radical uh, economic sharing, social inclusion, and political engagement of that is already covered in what I said, in taking part in the decision-making of, uh, of the community. For those of you who are, uh, would be interested in um, pursuing this further, uh, you can, I'm going to put a, some sources up on my website. But what I'd like to do now is uh, look at how, how that kind of sangha, the, the kind of communities of practice uh, that we may find ourselves in already or wanting to be part of, wanting to constantly around ourselves, want to take part in, seems uh, remarkably suitable to living in this moment of the great turning. We are already seeing that uh, the most uh, uh, promising technical, agricultural, um, social changes uh, of the great turning are happening on a local level, sort of under the radar of a ever more centralized uh, corporate state that is increasingly using its military power against its own people, its military power and its espionage power, uh, as if uh, the state is afraid 
of its own citizens. So you don't need to look very far to see how this is working with some of what has been revealed in the last few years by many sources, including uh, Edward Snowden. And that the, uh, where you get the mo most adaptive responses for the future and the most uh, heart and creativity is low to the ground uh, at the local level. And it's been fun uh, for me living in the uh, Northern California, looking up here in this area, Sonoma, Mendocino, and on up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it seems to be a, an area that is, is very fruitful in um, citizen, or maybe not even citizen, human activity, people's activity, because some of the most creative activity, you don't have to be citizens, you just have to you have the courage to come out and work even if you're undocumented. And uh, that uh, here in such communities of practice, uh, people can find the uh, belonging that is uh, increasingly a vacant uh, uh, in a mass-produced culture. And where they, uh, there's face-to-face -face contact and appetite for even uh, personal relations and spiritual practice. And so when I look at the communities that are uh, like have uh, 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 been successful in using community rights to assure the uh, uh, right to label genetically modified uh, goods and, and crops, um, where they've been able to fight the uh, taking of the water, uh, the fracking. Um, these, the actions, because they, uh, at the state level, and certainly at the federal level, uh, the action or absence of it for defending uh, people's needs uh, is very depressing. Are you following me? Yeah. yeah. So you can see what I'm doing. What I'm doing is looking back at the early sanghas and looking, and, and, and there's something else they did back then in those early sanghas. They remembered. They repeated and remembered what they, the stories they'd heard about the Buddha. They repeated to each other and remembered, because for three centuries, there was, no, they weren't written down. Was it that long? My God. At any rate, uh, the function, uh, 
that is an important function for our time, perhaps more important than almost anything else. Because of so much of our knowledge has been digitized. And in order to access it, we need electricity. There is much that to be remembered. My grandchildren don't remember what they learned about history and geography in school and social studies because they can get it with a flick of a finger from the, uh, their electronic devices. And when these go, as is feared and even predicted by some of the uh, thinkers that I most trust because of how rickety are uh, the, the condition of our electricity production, our electric grid, with coming un civil unrest and climate change, that the likelihood of brownouts and blackouts, rolling blackouts, and then more and more. Um, this is in a most recent book by one of my great teachers, Richard Heinberg, who lives in this city of Santa Rosa. And uh, this, uh, and a few others who have talking about, not many scholars are looking at this, what will happen when we find we need knowledge that has been digitized and only accessible electronically. Even how to treat measles or how to caulk a boat. I mean, there's a lot of how to purify water. I recommend a book called by Richard Heinberg. That's the scholar I'm referring to who lives here in Santa Rosa. His latest to appear, that appeared last month is called After Burn. I thought it sounded like a digestive tablet or something, but <laughs> After Burn is the means that this week we've been having the great burning. That's just because we've been burning so much and burning our planet. So uh, on our last afternoon together, <sighs> I want to share with you, I haven't quite learned how to do it yet, because this is not uh, something I've taken to the road uh, about. But I uh, have uh, mentioned it in a few recent uh, speeches. And, uh, and Shambhala Publications, when uh, they contacted me when I was in Boston a week before last. <coughs> We're very excited about doing a, a book about that. But I would need to have people think with me because I'm, I'm tired of writing. But I, it's, an in, it's interesting. Tell me you're interested. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, and... and uh, I'm thrilled. I am so excited about it because we have uh, so much already. We've been given so much 
We've been given these teachings and we have been given a lot of information already about permaculture and about appropriate technology and about already a lot of thinking about the gift economy. It's not as if we had to start inventing everything. It's out there. But how are we going to hold it? We're going to hold it together. And by holding it together in uh, communities of practice, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to take care of each other so that when things get worse, they're going to get worse before they get better. You certainly know that, don't you? We will be havens in the storm for each other. We will be like communities of practice, Buddhist or non-Buddhist, it doesn't matter, but the, all the practices that we've been doing here appeal to everybody right across the board. You don't have to be know about the Buddha or the mother of all Buddhas or anything. You have to be a human being. And particularly, if you take seriously those who are thinking about the likelihood of further steps in citizen control uh, by the uh, federal state. And when you, or if you're thinking about once climate change or a nuclear accident, what disturbs the uh, long distance delivery of goods and food, the civil unrest that will happen, particularly in our cities, but towns as well, the way we're set up. You go to that supermarket and you can loot it and then it's gone and then what? Then So that there'll be kind of um, civil unrest is, is certainly uh, um, reasonable to expect. And so the conditions for uh, fear will be very great, it seems to me. So instead of being a survivalist and taking to the hills with your uh, boxes of canned cartridges and canned soup or what have you, you, around you, in the towns, around us where we live, we uh, generate uh, communities or find and take part in uh, communities of practice. And for some years now, uh, I have seen and, and thought about them and recognized them happening and seeing that they are like uh, rough weather networks that take care 
of people uh, through anxious times. And it would be very hard for a uh, fascists in government to disappear somebody because we'll know where we are. It's very interesting to look at uh, cultures where there's a lot of disappearing going on right now in Mexico, in Colombia. And so we want to, instead of, we could, we could, we can go toward fear or we could go toward care. We could move toward solidarity. Because I believe that there is nothing that can, no challenge, no terror can face us that we cannot find the choice to respond in a way that increases our life. So, we might learn then in these, so I'll just tell you some thoughts I have about how it might work in a, a community of practice. And you might find you're already in one. Two things mainly, drawing from the mother of all Buddhas, Prajnaparamita, clear seeing and a clear eyes. Remember how often she's, we talk or she's seen as having open eyes? And then when she's Tara, their eyes in her forehead and her hands and her feet. She sees. She sees what's going on. Well, it's very hard to do that in a con- culture where the media are corporate controlled and people are kept in the dark. We need each other to keep us informed. So by coming together, whether it's an evening every fortnight or what have you for starters, you could have part of the time your function together to keep the eyes open and report to each other what's happening in the great turning. What's happening in the forces of oppression if they continue in the direction they have been? It was interesting that somebody yesterday, who was it that referred to Sophie Scholl in Munich? Yeah. I, went to, I was a student at, at Munich University not, th- not that long ago. Actually, <laughs> no, but actually only 10 years later. And... Uh, that kind of courage to uh, keep feed the intelligence of the people so they don't fall asleep. So in communities of practice, could there not be uh, would that could that not be a place 
where we uh, support each other by uh, sharing what we know is happening. Might even divide up the assignments. Hey, will you keep telling us what's happening with the uh, urban farms that are sprouting up? There's fabulous things that are going on. Or with the organizing, with the un undocumented students, or what have you. They're so beautiful. We need that the way we need, you know, red corpuscles in Arbor to know the good news. And then some others might take it on to uh, keep us abreast of uh, what's happening uh, that's not so welcome. We need to know. I was just hearing about, from one of us here, about works that she's doing with community members and the police force in her city. Uh, using nonviolent communication and playback theater and building trust. We all need to know that. You're not going to find it in the New York Times. <laughs> so a community of practice where we think of the uh, Prajnaparamita's clear seeing so that we become uh, observant of our world. What? What was the second? I'm coming to it. I had to look. The open heart. And the open heart is uh, working with fear. I'd like to look at that. I'd like to um, uh, take now the rest of this time and then we're going to when when um, Deborah comes in, uh, see if we want to uh, uh, divide ourselves into, uh, find other people from our locality that we could meet with after the retreat. Okay, you ready for fear? <laughs> okay. Um, It's wonderful to uh, I remember that when I, I, wait a minute, you've been here for, let's take a five-minute break. And then we're going to come back and do fear practices for dealing with fear. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.